you have your Bibles, can you turn to Galatians chapter 5? Galatians chapter 5. And we will begin at verse 13. Galatians chapter 5. And beginning at verse 13. All right. We're going to read to verse 18. For you were called to freedom, brothers. Only do not use your freedom as an opportunity for the flesh, but through love serve one another. For the whole law is fulfilled in one word. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. But if you bite and devour one another, watch out that you are not consumed by one another. But I say, walk by the spirit and you will not gratify the desires of the flesh for the desires of the flesh are against the spirit and the desires of the spirit are against the flesh for these are opposed to each other to keep you from doing the things you want to do thus far. Oh, keep going. (laughs) But if you are led by the spirit, you are not under the law. Thus far, God's word. Our first point this morning is this. Freedom, from, uh, freedom of Christ is not an opportunity for slavery to the flesh. Freedom of Christ is not an opportunity for slavery to the flesh. We can see this in verse 13. For you were called to freedom, brothers. Only do not use your freedom as an opportunity for the flesh, but through love serve one another. So Christ has come to, ca- to set the captives free. We sing this in Christmas carols. This is a very common phrase that we hear. Christ has come to set the captives free. Christ has fulfilled the unmet requirements which God had for humanity. God, when he created humanity, had requirements. He had a job description. He had a description of what life is. And here is the thing that they ought to do. This is their purpose. This is why he created them. And until Christ had come, nobody had fulfilled that. That was a a job that had not been checked off. Nobody had done the things for which humanity had actually been created. But he did that. He did it in our place. As our representative. As the head of the body. And so we are set free from a debt that we could not pay. So now we do not relate to God based on how well we keep the law. That's not our relationship to God. That's not how we pray. That's not why we can expect promises and blessings and, and, and the love and affection from God. We do not relate to God on, based on how well we can keep the law. So for a Christian, a person who has repented and trusted in the Lord Jesus, we stand before God, not based on our obedience to the law of God, but based on Christ's obedience to the law of God. We're free. We're free. But now what are we going to do with our freedom? What are we free to do? We're not just free, period, end of story, close the book. What are we free to do? And the first thing Paul says, points out what should be obvious, your freedom is not so that you can go and find some more slavery. Seems obvious. Seems like Paul didn't need to say that. Now imagine a prison camp filled with POWs, prisoners of war who are being treated cruelly by their captors. 
And there is a team of Navy SEALs, and they have been planning for months a daring rescue. And they know it's likely going to cost a life or two to save those captives. Now, the day of the operation arrives, and the SEALs are making a daring rescue. Two SEALs are killed in the battle, but they are victorious. The captors, imagine this, the captors, those prison guards, are all handcuffed and shamefully lined up, sitting on their butts, helpless, cannot harm any of those prisoners anymore, and the prisoners are paraded by them. And they can't stop them. Now, these SEALs find a bunch of POWs don't actually want to be rescued. The doors open, the captors are bound and powerless to overturn them, but they've already defected to the enemy. And they actually wish to stay in that prison camp. And others are rescued, and, and they happily follow the SEALs out of the prison camp gates. You can see this. Picture this. They're walking past the gates. They leave those fences behind them. They're outside of the fence. You are free, declares the SEAL team leader. Free? Like, I, I'm free to make my own decisions? I'm free to walk wherever I want to walk? Yes, says the team leader. And so then one of the rescued captives sets off toward another prison camp and offers him, and he's, he's there to offer himself as the prisoner. And the SEAL captain shouts out after him, what are you doing? Don't do that. And imagine the foolishness of the man turning around and yelling, you said I was free to do whatever I wanted. It's my free choice. That would be foolish. That would be utterly, utterly foolish. That is not the reason those seals risked and gave their lives was not so that you can find another prison camp. Now imagine on top of this foolishness, if, if that man is now in that prison camp and every single year, he celebrates the victory of those seals to set him free. Oh, I love those guys. Look what they did. They set me free so that I could go to another prison camp. That would be foolishness on top of foolishness. And this is the kind of slavery, the kind of foolishness that Paul addresses in the book of Galatians. And we think it's, and it is, we're right to think that it's utter foolishness, but we would be wrong to think it's not the kind of foolishness we are susceptible to. Each one of us, Christians included, are very susceptible to that kind of utter foolishness. The kind of foolishness that a person watching or, or reading the story and seeing our characters would yell at us, says, you fool, don't do that. And as you often see in the Bible, the word, the little word for is a helpful one. So Paul says, for freedom, you were, you, uh, brothers, uh, you, for you were called to freedom, brothers. What is the little word there? Uh, 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 for, therefore. We can see, what is he talking about? What slavery is he primarily talking about? What is the kind of slavery that we will often run to and use our Christianity as an excuse for that? What is Paul talking about by don't, let your, don't use your freedom as an opportunity for the flesh? So that word uh, for connects us to the previous sentence. And what was that previous sentence? You see that? Verse 15, or sorry, for verse 12, sorry. 
I wish those who unsettle you would emasculate themselves. Pretty harsh wording. And what is he saying? I, those people who are adding more Christian rules. He says, I, I wish they would just cut themselves out of the church. I wish they would just leave, cut themselves off from the church, be put out of the church. And so we see that the primary meeting, not the only, but the primary meaning of don't use your freedom as an opportunity for the flesh is this. Christ did not set you free from your debt to the law of God so that you could make up more debts and more laws, more ways to prove that you are a good person. So we can either relate to God by faith in what Christ has done or by works. By trusting in Christ's character, his promises and accomplishments, or by trusting ourselves and our own accomplishments. We can relate to him either by the flesh, which is ourselves, or by the spirit. And many of the Galatian believers were convinced that the freedom Christ earned for them made them free to earn a better standing in the family of God, in the kingdom of heaven, in the household of God. And, and Paul says, that's slavery. That's not sonship. You're trying to earn your inheritance. That's, that's foolish. You're acting like a hired worker rather than a son or daughter of God. That's not living by the spirit. Paul says that's living by the flesh. You're free, but you're not free to make up your own rules for holiness, your own ways to improve your relationship with God, your own idea of a badge of holiness and hearing from God and, and being a better person. You aren't free now to make up your own laws and your own religious activities, not for yourselves and not for others. He says that is the flesh and it's foolish. That is using freedom as an opportunity for the flesh, adding more rules, more practices, more principles, more methods to knowing God. So also is using freedom in Christ as an opportunity to ignore the commands of God. That's treating one form of slavery, which would be legalism for another form of slavery, which is lawlessness making the death of Christ, the sacrifice uh, for your freedom, making it meaningless. And this, it seems like both of these things are happening in Galatia. They're embracing legalism and also rejecting the actual commands of God. And this is what happens every single time somebody tries to improve on God's instructions, improve on his law, improve on what he says is holy. You will favor the extra rules and you will ignore the ones that he actually said. You're going to end up finding ways to glorify yourself rather than glorifying God. When you invent new ways to glorify God, this is what happens when you add to the law and instruction and wisdom of God in scripture. And it's also what you get when you take away from the law and instruction and wisdom of God in scripture. You're saying that you have to improve on the glory of God, of what he thinks is glorious and what he thinks is beautiful. Maybe you're erasing a few brushstrokes from the Mona Lisa or adding a few more. Either way, you're doing the same thing. It's you who is getting the glory and not the original artist. And the Christian bookstores and the internet are full of books adding more principles, 
10 steps, new standards, new practices to know God. One of the trends in evangelicalism today is, is also that you have to hear God speaking to you in your thoughts or ideas, waiting for more instructions or promises, adding. But when you add, Paul is saying, you are not improving on God's glory. Even though you say you're doing that, or even though that's your, maybe your intention. But you are distracting from the sweet instruction which he has given to all his children, all at one time at the founding of the church 2,000 years ago. You're not free to make your own rules, your own ways of saying that you're obeying God. Now, dear church, this has come into the church in the Trojan horse of the words freedom of conscience. I am free to be bound by my conscience. God requires you to honor the fact that I am enslaved to my conscience. And my, my conscience requires me to worship God in this way, to do this, to do that, to not do this. And I'm free to be bound to anything and everything that my conscience is bound on. And this is used as a trump card. And so a person saying this, saying to somebody, brother, the Lord doesn't require that of you in scripture. Oh, but my conscience tells me that the Lord requires me to do it. This is nonsense. Imagine if the Galatian heretic said, oh no, but my conscience requires me to be circumcised. <laughs> that wouldn't have stopped Paul's argument. The question is, does the word of God require you to do that? And, and these people, you've heard the phrase used quite a bit in the last couple of years. These people take the phrase, God alone is Lord of the conscience. It's a good phrase. And they turn it around essentially to say that the conscience is Lord. It's not at all what the original writers of that were meaning. The original meaning of the phrase wasn't to say that if you feel anything was required, then God is feeling that or saying that. But rather what they were meaning to say is this. If you were convinced by scripture alone that God required you of some uh, required something of you, then you ought to do that. Even if others told you, don't worry about it. Because the same men who rightly wrote that God is the Lord of the conscience. That was in the, it's in the Westminster confession of faith in the 1600s. The same men who wrote that God is alone, the Lord of the conscience. They were reformed, which means they would be willing to be burned at the stake for the other cry of the reformation, which was scripture alone can bind the conscience. So we don't really care what the writers of the Westminster confession said. We're more interested in what Paul says. And Paul here is warning against extra requirements other than from Christ's word. And he's saying every time you do that, it is an opportunity for the flesh. It is an opportunity to live as the old man in the POW camp to give glory to what you can do with your flesh rather than what Jesus did with his flesh 2000 years ago. And you will end up treating your own self as Lord for yourself and also Lord of your fellow church members. My conscience will not permit me to worship at nine 30 on Sundays. It will only permit me 
to worship at 1030. Well, guess who's Lord of that church? No, says Paul. Only Christ is Lord and only Christ is Savior. He has not set you free now to worship other lords, especially not your own flesh. Now, the people who don't want to relate to God solely based on Christ's finished work 2,000 years ago will always be giving opportunity to be enslaved to the flesh, to glorify their flesh, to treat it as their God or as their Savior. And that, we should be reading this and hearing this pointing to ourselves. Not just how other people are prone to do that, but how we are prone to do that. The sweet solution is to trust in the work that Jesus did in his flesh, which secures your sonship and daughtership to God. And to treat his word alone as your conscience binder. The one that corrects and shapes your conscience. Let the scripture be Lord over your conscience. And over the consciences of your brothers and sisters in Christ. Or it will not be Christ who is delighted in and glorified and treated as Lord. It will be your flesh. And brothers and sisters, Christ is a way better master than your flesh. Second point. Christian freedom is the freedom to love and serve rather than compete with and use one another. Christian freedom is the freedom to love and serve rather than compete with and use one another. We can see this together in 13 to 15. Let's read that. For you were called to freedom, brothers. Only do not use your freedom as an opportunity for the flesh, but through love serve one another. For the whole law is fulfilled in one word. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. But if you bite and devour one another, watch out that you are not consumed by one another. Hold on, Paul. You're saying that Christ has set us free from slavery, from being slaves. So now we are free to serve one another? Oh, no, it's serving, not slavery. Except (laughs) the same Greek word that is used to say slavery is the word that is being used to say serve one another. Doulos, same word. Aren't we supposed to be free men and women, Paul? So which is it? Does Christ set a Christian free from servanthood? Or does he make us servants? And Paul is saying both. He does set us free from bondage. We are free from working, from serving God and neighbor in order to earn our keep. We're set free from actions of love toward God and neighbor in order to gain a place in the household of God or keep a place in the household of God because Christ fulfilled our service to God. The slavery of earning your standing before God, the slavery of earning your salvation, the slavery of earning God's answers to your prayers. We are saved by works. Just not our own works. We're saved by the works of the Lord Jesus Christ, by his obedience and by his death on the cross and his resurrection. So we're slaves, we're free from the slavery to law in that sense, but we're also freed from the slavery of sin, of being enslaved to wicked desires that wage war against the Lord and against righteousness and holiness. So then, what then is true freedom? To serve God as a daughter or son rather than as an enemy or a hired worker. That is true freedom. To serve God as a daughter or son rather than an enemy 
or as a hired worker. Because the law of God, the eternal law of God, is actually a description of what freedom and life really are. They show, the, the law of God shows you what slavery is, and it shows you what sin is. And that law is summarized with two words. Love the Lord your God, and love your neighbor as yourself. So, freedom then is serving your neighbor, says Paul. But, doing it as a son of God, rather than as a hired worker, trying to earn something. Perhaps you've witnessed the craziness of office politics or the craziness of politics. So you, maybe you're aware there's, there's, there's usually a guy or, or gal always looking to, to, to look good in order to get a promotion. You guys know this and probably you've got a, somebody in mind who, who you're thinking of. Always trying to take credit for things that, which, which aren't his idea and which were not his work. Always trying to downplay the accomplishments of other people. Because he's trying to look the best, he's trying to get ahead of the other people in the eyes of the boss. He'll work with you, but never for your benefit. Only if it's going to help him, his goal to, of, 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 uh, of looking good and getting a promotion. So helping out in ways that might accomplish your projects or goals, not a chance. Only if he can get noticed. So he's serving, not for the benefit of you, not for the benefit even of, of the employer or the, the company, but everything is to gain something. Never just, never just out of love or care. And I hope you can see how the gospel sets us free from that type of false servanthood or false freedom. When, when a person is really only serving themselves, not other people, even when they're serving other people, and here's how. If my acceptance before God is based on how well I serve him, on the rules that I keep and the things that I do, then I'm never actually doing something out of love for God, am I? I'm doing it to gain eternal life. I'm doing it to gain his affection. I'm doing it to gain his forgiveness, to gain blessings, to gain answers from prayers. So every time I'm serving God, if that's how I relate to God, I'm only doing it for myself. I can't say I'm doing it out of love for God. Same thing is true is if I am saved by loving my neighbor. Every time I do something nice for my neighbor, who am I really doing it for? I'm doing it for myself. But if my standing before God is secured by what Christ did in his human flesh 2,000 years ago, then I'm freed to serve as an heir rather than as a hired worker. I'm free to serve others for their benefit and their joy in love for them rather than love for myself. Free to care about the needs of other people because I love them. Free to do these things for the pleasure of God's pleasure. Not because I'm trying to get something from God, but because I love to do things which please him. Because I love him. Because he first loved me. And the quickest way to destroy Christian freedom and Christian love is the false freedom of adding extra rules, extra requirements, which will turn everybody into competitors or adversaries whose ideas are better, whose conscience will be Lord of the church. And it also competes with the other goal and commands of Christ, which is to love and serve one another. See, you will not have time or attention or energy to do both. 
You can either give yourself to following Christ's instructions and commands and his definition of what is pleasing to God, or you're going to give yourself to your own ideas about what is pleasing to God. And Paul says this is a choice between spirit and flesh. You're either going to serve confident in Christ's accomplishments for how we will live, or you're going to be serving with confidence in your own. So what does serving one another then look like? Paul is going to get to that soon. And Pastor Jordan is going to walk us through those things as we continue this book. But a good summary is to love your neighbor as yourself. It's Christ's summary, isn't it? That's what it means to serve one another. Make it your aim that they would delight in and enjoy God and his goodness. Now, this is going to take time and effort and attention and sacrifice and resources. It is going to take a confidence that this life and its stuff is not all there is so that you can spend it on love for others and as a reflection of how much Christ has loved you. And loving your neighbor as yourself is going to look different, a little different based on your relationship with a person. Fatherly love is different than husband love, which is different from than a brotherly love, which is different from the love of an employee, which is different than the love of a neighbor. As scripture gives us godly, lovely descriptions as how love manifests in each of these relationships. And the love of a church member which I think is Paul's primary view here, how the church loves itself, loves each other. That's going to be modeled after those things as well, the love within a family. So what does it look like for me as a man to love another man in the church who is close to my age? Treat that man as if he were your brother. The things you would help your brother do, do with that man. What if, what would you do if your brother lost his job? Was having a hard time, was diagnosed with cancer, didn't show up to family dinner, was struggling with sin. And Christ says, because you are both in me, in my family, behold your brother. What about another man in the church who's much older than me? Paul's going to say in 1 Timothy, that love for that man looks kind of like the love that you would have for your dad. That's how you treat that guy. What about older women in the church? Like your mom. Younger women. Like your sister. Younger men. The kind of help a man would give to an adult son. Open homes. Visit the homes of others and bring care and make it your goal to help them enjoy gifts that Christ purchased for them with his blood. This is harder than making up extra rules and keeping them. This takes more effort than keeping kosher or getting circumcised or finding out what CBC or Rebel News or MSNBC or Fox thinks you should do with masks or vaccines. This is harder than that. That is easy. Harder than devoting yourself to see what some Yahoo in the internet says about COVID and the mark of the beast. That's easy and it's counterfeit. And it is adding 
to the word and law of God, and it is only an opportunity for the flesh. But it is how you enjoy and express your confidence that God has reconciled you to himself in Christ 2,000 years ago. So dear brothers and sisters, you can look around the room and you can see each other. You have phone numbers and you have email addresses. You want to live as those who believe that we are justified by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, to the glory of God alone? You want to live as men and women who love the doctrines of grace and who care deeply about rich theology and the sovereignty of God? You want to show that you're that? Open your homes to one another. Love each other like family. This is how that is done, without competition or animosity, without confidence in the flesh, but to the glory of God alone. You are free to love God, truly for the love of God. And you are free to love each other, truly because you love each other, not because you're trying to earn something from God or prove something to him. The third point, Christ gives the Holy Spirit who provides the freedom of godly desires. Christ gives the Holy Spirit, who provides the freedom of godly desires. We'll see this in in verses 16 to 17. But I say, walk by the Spirit, and you will not gratify the desires of the flesh. For the desires of the flesh are against the Spirit, and the desires of the Spirit are against the flesh. For these are opposed to each other, to keep you from doing the things you want to do. Thus far, God's word. If what I just described to you from scripture about loving one another, if that sounds impossible, you're right. It is impossible. It is impossible in the flesh. It is impossible for our natural selves. But what is impossible with man is possible with God. And this seemed impossible to the Galatian false teachers If you don't threaten people with damnation, if you don't have to care for people to earn your salvation, if you don't have to keep the law of God in order to go to heaven, how in the world are you going to get people to do that? Exactly, says Paul. We actually need new desires because a threat of hell is not enough for you to say no to your desires. What you need is a new heart with new desires. So we need the Holy Spirit of God living within us, making us new creations. And that is the solution to the slavery of sin. Legalism is not a freedom from that slavery. It is also slavery. The freedom that Christ gives us is the freedom of godly desires. Not no desires, but godly desires. And this is the gift of the Holy Spirit, who is Christ's gift to all who belong to him. To put a new heart in us. He works godly desires in us. He's not saying... I desire blue things, so the Holy Spirit must want me to pick blue things. No, 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 no. 
He's saying, but desiring to love God and neighbor and to glorify and trust Christ Jesus alone. So that serving God and neighbor is not going against our desires, but fulfilling new desires that God has now worked in us make after making us new. Serving God in the power of the Holy Spirit is true freedom because he also gives us the will to do this. We see that in Philippians. So this is opposed to legalism. Serving God in order to gain something for ourselves. And it's opposed to lawlessness, which is slavery to sinful desires. Both legalism and lawlessness are common in the world and you can find them everywhere in culture, in pagan culture, but the Holy Spirit is opposed to both of those desires. So if you're a Christian, those desires, sin, the desire to sin, as well as the desire to earn God's affection, those are desires of the old self, and they are opposed to what you truly want to do. Um, You might say, uh, Paul, when I'm being lazy, when I'm cheating on my taxes, when I'm gossiping, when I'm looking at pornography, when I'm yelling at my mom, when I'm slandering my coworker, when I'm getting drunk, when I'm sleeping with my girlfriend, I'm doing exactly what I want. And Paul says, not if you're a Christian. Not if you are in Christ by faith. That is who you used to be. But you are a new creation. The old has gone and the new has come. We need to remember that the Christian is first given a new identity. You become a new self. And then you live out of that new identity. And so, dear brothers and sisters, if you've trusted and and, and repented of your sin and trusted in Christ, you are justified. You are declared by God as holy and righteous, but you've also been declared as him as a new person. And that is now what is most true about you. That is your identity. You are a redeemed person. God now calls you a saint, a holy person. This is your truest self. It is the thing which is most true about you. You are a holy person. You are a child of God. You are a lover of God. And your great desire, your greatest joy and satisfaction is when God is glorified. And you will often not feel that way. Which is why we have the gospel and the word of God to tell us, this is who you are and that is who you used to be. That is not who you really are and what you really desire, dear Christian. What you really desire, your truest self, is to love God and keep his commandments. And the Holy Spirit is the gift of God to give you that new heart and to develop those new desires in you so that you're no longer prevented from doing the things you want to do, which are the things that God is pleased with. And this is true freedom. Not the freedom to resist your most true desires. Not the freedom from desires, but the freedom of new godly desires. That is the gift of the Holy Spirit. Fourth point, last point. If you are led by and walk by the Spirit, you are not under the law. You're led and walked by the spirit. You're not under the law. We see this in verse 18. But if you are led by the spirit, you're not under the law. Now, what does Paul mean by being led by the spirit? And what does he mean by you're not under the law? Let's take the first question first. What does Paul mean by being led by the spirit? So when scripture talks of the spirit's work in a person, 
Maybe that's being led by the Spirit or walking by the Spirit or being filled with the Spirit or being in the Spirit. Scriptures speak of it in two ways. First, they speak of it as positionally or being in the possession of the Holy Spirit. And so that means that to be led by the Spirit or filled with the Spirit simply just means to be a Christian. Anybody who has the Holy Spirit, which means anybody who has trusted in the gospel of Christ. He gave you faith to believe the gospel. He granted you repentance. This is who you are. You're a person who has the spirit, who's in the spirit, who's filled with the spirit and being led by the spirit. You were led by the spirit to Christ. But there's another way that scripture speaks of all these different ways to be influenced or uh, have a relationship with the Holy Spirit. And that's the day by day living by his power. When we exercise the life that Christ purchased for us. When we exercise faith in Christ, when we do the things that the spirit always leads Christians to do, he always leads and directs us to know and to delight in God. And when we do those things, we are led by the spirit. When we are enjoying the things that God enjoys, we are being led by the spirit. When we are trusting the promises of Christ, we're being led by the spirit. And when we love the commands and instructions that he gives to us, we're being led by the spirit. The second question that we had is, what does it mean to be under the law? Not under the law. There's two things. The first is that the law doesn't condemn you. The law of God doesn't condemn you. If you are led by the spirit, if you are a Christian, which is to say that you have faith in Christ and therefore you have the spirit. The law does not stand over you and saying, here's the things that he hasn't accomplished yet. Because Christ accomplished those things in your place. The law doesn't condemn you as a person who the law has not yet been fulfilled. Christ fulfilled it for you. So the law doesn't condemn you. Neither does the law condemn you and say, this person hasn't had their punishment yet. They've broken God's law and they need to have a punishment for it. The law can't condemn you that way either because Christ took your punishment on the cross. So you're not under the law in that sense. Now the law does condemn people. The law condemns people. Everybody who has not trusted in the Lord Jesus stands before God condemned because you've broken God's law. You're a fool to think you haven't broken God's law, that you've done everything that would please the Lord and only that. You're a fool to think that. And you're also a fool to think that you could stand before God with that record. So humble yourself and run to Christ. Put your faith in him and you get his record. And he has taken your punishment. And rather than standing before God on your own two feet, as you deserve, oh, you can trust that Christ hung in your place on the cross. And you can now stand before God in the place Christ deserves. So it means that if you are led by the spirit, if you're a Christian, that means you're not under the law. That's what the first meaning is. But the other meaning is that you're not constrained by The law, it doesn't stop or restrict your most true desires. The law of God stopped and constrained you and frustrated you and got in your way when you were not a believer. It got in the way of achieving your goals and the things that you wanted most, the things that were most true for you, which is hating God and being selfish and and, and worshiping idols and, and treating other things, anything other than God as God, the law of God frustrated you from doing that. And it stopped the things that was most true about you. But that's not true anymore if you've come to faith in Christ. God's law does not stop you 
from doing exactly what you want to do if your desire is to honor God, to worship him, and to love and serve your neighbor. God's law does not stand in your way at all. God's law does not hinder that. It doesn't make it harder. The law of God outlines the boundaries of what love is. But it doesn't prevent love. It doesn't prevent you from loving God. Or in Paul's words, it doesn't prevent you from doing the thing that you, you want to do. If you're in Christ. But the law is not the goal. Not the commandments anyways. The Ten Commandments, don't steal, don't kill, commit adultery, engage in homosexuality or pornography or theft or abortion or slander. Don't worship other gods. Don't worship God using idols. Don't lie, don't covet. Those things are not the goal. They are the rules in a sense, but they're not the goal. The goal in football is to get the football to the end zone of the opposing team. That's the goal. But there are rules for how you can do that. You can't kick someone in the face in order to do that. You can't hold somebody. You can't taunt. You can't punch a referee. You can't delay the game. You can't go offside. There are rules. Now, imagine if a football player felt very successful simply because he hadn't gotten any penalties and hadn't even tried to get the ball across the goal line. That guy's missing the point. He's confusing the rules with the goal. And so too is a Christian who thinks the point is to not break the rules of God. Paul says, you're acting like a slave, a slave of those rules. It's not the point. Yes, don't kill and don't commit adultery. But if that's your goal, you're living simply by the flesh. And you think the law is the point. You're always going to feel like the law of God is either getting in your way and you'll resent it and want to remove things from the law of God. Or you're going to think the law of God isn't strict enough. And you're going to want to add more rules for yourself and for other people. Rather than honoring the commands that God has given and trusting the promises he's made. You're going to feel constrained by those things, hemmed in. You feel like somebody who says, no, don't add any more instruction. You'd be like, you're, you're preventing me from following God. And you're going to fight with the people who want to add different rules than you do. Or take away different rules than you do. You're going to compete with others who are trying to add new teachings because you can't see the sweetness of serving God as an heir. The gift of new and godly desires, which of course don't break the law, but the law is not the point. In, in closing, brothers and sisters, we need to see that we were all slaves. Slaves of the law in that we hadn't kept it and we we owed that obedience to God. And also slaves of sin. Required to keep a good law that our hearts hated. And we were also in bondage to sin. But Christ has by his life and death and resurrection called us to freedom. The freedom of worshiping God as an heir. Not to gain anything from God. But to enjoy God. And to enjoy God's enjoyment. The freedom to serve and love others, not to gain anything from them, but purely for their benefit, for their good as Christ served you. And he's given us his Holy Spirit to give us new hearts which desire those things which truly are freedom. In this life, until the Lord comes back or until we die, 
we will always be tempted to prefer slavery. Either the slavery of sin or the slavery of earning our standing with God and and making new rules. So dear brothers and sisters, flee from both of these kinds of slavery and run freely as sons and daughters of the Lord God Almighty. Love each other well. Don't find new ways to test or prove your holiness or the holiness of others. Do do not look for opportunities to put confidence in what you can do in your flesh, but live in the confidence of what Christ did in his flesh 2,000 years ago. And that was more than sufficient to make you free and to make you an heir of God. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we confess that we are so much like that person in the illustration who thinks his freedom is an opportunity for more slavery. And we are so prone to it. But we are grateful that you don't let us do that. You don't permit that. You continue to call us to true freedom, which is to serve you by your spirit, not to earn salvation because Christ has already done that, but to walk in salvation. Lord, would you forgive us for the ways that we um, do things looking for opportunities for our flesh? Would you forgive us for that and would you also cleanse us of that? And Lord, would you make us free truly free to do those things which are truly freedom, to love you and enjoy you and to love one another according to what you say is love. Lord, you are a good master, better than our flesh, better than anyone else. It is a pleasure to serve you as our Lord, who is also our Father. And I pray that you would work that in us In Christ's name, by the power of the Holy Spirit.